0: He knows his stuff and sure enough it's shooting the bull with Tom Snow. In today's episode, we are going to be looking at the Scottish War of Independence. For those of you who are familiar with the movie Braveheart, starring Mel Gibson, you probably are familiar with the Scottish War of Independence. It was fought in the late 1200s and early 1300s between Scotland and England. My guest today will be my brother, Bob Snow, who is an expert on Scottish history. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Here is my first guest, my brother, Bob Snow. And Bob, you are kind of like a Scottish expert, wouldn't you say? Thank you, Mr. Snow. Uh, I would use the term uh, enthusiastic uh, supporter of Scottish history or an enthusiastic scholar. But not a not a doctor and not a uh, an official on it. Sure. Uh, but Bob's always had a like, big affinity for uh, Scottish history and our Scottish heritage. I have not really. Wouldn't you say? I don't know, man. I saw you in a kilt on Halloween that one time. So it I was, I, I, and I'm sure you loved every second of it. It was. It was a, like, a good breeze out there. It was. <laughs> it was a good experience. But um, well, let's get let's get into the show. So. Our topic today is the Scottish War of Independence, and I think it looks like it's going to be a two-part series. Is that correct? I think we've got enough material here for two episodes. All right. So let me look at my show notes. So let's start with the Scottish War of Independence, and start by giving me some background. So basically, was Scotland part of England before the war happened? It was not part of England before the war happened, and it was never really officially part of England. Um, this was a time before nation states, as we know them, existed. Uh, they, you know, in the times of feudalism, uh, titles were held by by kings, and, and you know, lower titles were held by dukes and counts and barons and the like. Uh, and so there there was no kind of law saying you know Scotland is a, a province of England uh, at this time. Um, what happened was that uh, Scotland made a the a a bit of a a, a boo-boo in uh, asking the King of England to help uh, facilitate the solution to a succession crisis, uh, which occurred after the death of King Alexander III of Scotland in 1286. Uh, Alexander III was, uh, he was actually a very good king. Um, He had a very tragic last decade of his rule uh, but he was a very successful monarch. Uh, he was uh, actually married to the, uh, well, he was the sister of uh, King Edward I of England. Uh, his daughter, Margaret, was married to the King of Norway, uh, which was another longtime enemy of Scotland. Uh, and he brokered a couple of peace deals in those marriages. That's where how alliances were, were made back then. Uh, but when he was uh, In his 40s, he lost both of his sons to illness, Alexander uh, the Younger and David. And his own daughter, Margaret, who was married to Eric of Norway, also died in childbirth, uh, leaving him a widower and essentially childless. And so uh, he set out to marry again, and he did marry again. Uh, to a, a French woman. I, f- I forget her name, but uh, it, her... We'll, we'll add to the podcast notes. We'll add to the podcast notes? Okay. Yeah, no worries. Uh, so he, he did marry again. Uh, and he was uh, on his way after a, a long meeting to visit her uh, when he got essentially caught up in a storm and was thrown off his horse and off a cliff to his death. Uh, leaving his granddaughter, Margaret, the maid of Norway, uh, essentially the four-year-old queen of Scotland. And she was sent via ship to Scotland uh, where she promptly died of illness at the age of eight and uh, essentially left the the throne completely vacant uh, with about, uh, I believe it was 13 competitors for the throne, uh, you'll recognize a couple of names like Robert the Bruce, uh, not not the Robert the Bruce, but Robert de Bruce, his grandfather, his eighty-something-year-old grandfather, uh, had a legitimate claim to the throne. Uh, you may have heard of John Balliol. We will get to him later. The, I've heard the name John had yeah, a Tomb Tabard, as he was later nicknamed, but that's a spoiler. Uh, the the Comans, uh, the Bruces, a lot of noble families that were essentially running the country at the time, all vying for the 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 throne of Scotland. I was going to say, would you mind tell me real quick what year is this, or like what century? This is the very end of the 13th century. So Edward, Alexander the Third dies in 1286. Okay, uh, and then Margaret dies. Uh, in 1291 so the, the throne is vacant in 1291 so it's kind of like game of thrones in it, it, much of uh of game of thrones is inspired by scottish history and uh, this is it, fans of game of thrones will recognize a dynastic struggle like this and, and find it interesting excellent so like how did edward longshanks or edward the first get involved with involved with scotland you mentioned that he, I guess was put in charge of the succession or choosing a successor or something like that. That's right. He, uh, so Edward, the first, uh, later nicknamed Longshanks, uh, Edward, the first was one of the most respected and powerful, uh, Kings in all of Europe, uh, at the time. His, I believe his brother was eventually a Holy Roman emperor. that's how powerful his family was. The only English Holy Roman emperor, um, but this Eddie, on the other hand, was a uh, he was a crusader. He had conquered uh, much of Wales uh, in a series of violent wars. Uh, he had been kind of a thorn in the French side for a long time. In fact, he was Duke of Gaste- Gascony in France, uh, and Scotland and the Scottish competitors came to him, uh, recognizing his you know, the, the international respect and power that he held. And uh, asked him to basically be the mediator for these thirteen competitors for the throne. And he the, he was not a good choice in hindsight, but at the time it was pretty obvious that he should be involved. He was actually related to Alexander the uh, Third. He actually had uh, you know dynastic ties to the the Dunkel dynasty. That uh, that Alexander the Third was part of. I was going to ask. So I, you mentioned he conquered most of Wales. Was he someone who was trying to like unify, maybe maybe not unify, conquer all of the British Isles as part of his kingdom? Is that kind yeah. of on his agenda? That was probably not his original intent. But as soon as he saw the opportunity, the idea of uniting Great Britain, uh, the island Great Britain. Uh, you know, kind of just fell in his lap. And the opportunity was, at the time, it seemed it was there for the taking. Uh, It looked like an easy win for Edward. But at this point, he was probably not thinking, okay, let's take advantage of this cold, barren wasteland to the north uh, and, and pause the war with France to take this rich territory on the continent. Which he had a valid claim to in his own mind. Sure. So what happens next? So Edward and these thirteen competitors—they uh, have a series of meetings. It's called the um, uh, the Great Cause—to uh, whittle down the uh, the true successor to the Scottish throne. Uh, like uh, like I said, it started at about. I think it was 13, between 11 and 13 competitors. And they had a series of meetings between England and Scotland, mostly in England uh, as kind of a show of authority, uh, which was much to the chagrin of, of the Scottish nobles. But he did he did, bow and, and have a few meetings in Scotland to help uh, whittle it down. And it came down to two. It came down to John Balliol, uh himself a, a descendant of um of Norman French nobility in Picardy and Robert de Bruce. Uh or we'll call him Robert Bruce, uh in his more famous name, the grandfather of the the more famous Robert the Bruce. They're a long line of Robert Bruce's. Uh but this is uh Grandpa Bruce and Papa Bruce. We'll call him Papa Bruce <laughs> And it was decided that Papa Bruce did not have the stronger claim. John Balliol had the stronger claim. And it, and even some of Bruce's own selected arbiters agreed. Uh, it, it was not meant to be uh, selecting the weaker of the two. In fact, uh, Robert Bruce was, you know, Grandpa Papa Bruce was famously, uh, you know, a friend and ally of, of Edward I of England. Um, so he was probably not considered the, uh, the stronger of the two. Um, and Balliol gets a really bad rep in, uh, in hindsight, uh, was basically made King uh, of Scotland by Edward and the, the Scottish nobles, the Scottish nobles chose and Edward agreed to it. Um, and, um, and so John Balliol is now, uh, King of Scotland. And that's the end of the story, right? Nope, it's no. Nope. <laughs> this is where things get pretty bad if you're uh, if you're Scottish. Uh, they're pretty fun if you're a, a fan of Edward the First of England, who in his you know in his own way uh, was a great king. He was very effective. He was uh, well liked by his people you know, through most of his reign. Um, he was uh, you know, a tall, strong, handsome kind of king that you want to be ruling your country devoted to his wife um uh the the castilian noblewoman, uh which was you know you expect today but in a time where uh marriages were made in in pursuit of political and military alliances you know it looks good for edward sure but this is oh go right ahead i was gonna say like i'm a revolutionary war expert um a lot of the praise you just gave to king edward he can probably give to king george the third as well very smart very handsome intellectual gentleman very good to his wife respected by his people in terms of like intellect and knowledge he was kind of advanced for his time so a lot of these kings that we ha- are we kind of believe are tyrants and get a bad rap probably weren't too bad they're on the wrong side of history exactly and though you know edward and george iii both had their flaws oh yeah they did wage some some wars and uh put down or in case of george lose some rebellions uh but you're right they're painted in a very bad light and uh they a lot can be said in favor of of edward the first and george the third excellent i'm glad i pointed that out yeah so so it's fun to pick on English royalty, especially if you're American or, or a fan of Scottish history. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's a good reason not to inbreed. But um, <laughs> with that being said, so there's a the King of Scotland. It sounds like the story is all about all, everybody lives happily ever after. And this is a very boring podcast. So spice it up. What happens next? Well, Edward undermines John Balliol from the start. This is where you're you are you are right that he kind of saw the uh, Edward saw this opportunity to uh, unite the island under him. Uh, you know, very quickly uh, he usurped the judicial system in Scotland. So, you know, he heard all of the, uh, the Scottish uh, nobles' you know gripes and 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 handed down judgment. Uh, he even forced. John Balliol to show up to court in London for an allegedly unpaid bar tab left by Alexander III. Uh, And the big kicker, you know, that John Balliol probably was okay with paying a bar tab, uh, but the big kicker, uh, the last straw for Scotland was Edward uh, requesting Scottish assistance in Uh, his war against france king philippe iv philippe the fair he's uh he's called these days and that was unacceptable scotland and france had not been you know the best of friends that we we often considered them in the middle ages at this point they were you know relatively disconnected uh but around this time uh john baliol actually uh you know refuses to to support the English uh, against the French. Um, and this was considered an act of rebellion by Edward. You know, this is, you know, this King that he put on the throne and had been kind of stepping all over suddenly standing up against him and telling him, no, uh, this was, uh, you know, an, an act of war to him. Uh, and especially because, um, you know, later on, Balliol signs a treaty with France uh, to essentially cement what we now call the old alliance between the two countries. Uh, it was you know, a political move uh, and a diplomatic move against England, and that was unacceptable to a king like Edward. Now the revolutionary war comparison. It's not too different from the United States and France in 1778, you you'll find quite a few similarities between the uh the American Revolution and the Scottish War of Independence it's the like founding a, fathers game, were there's a game plan about rebelling against the english and winning <laughs> this this was uh, the first trial it didn't look good you know we'll we'll find out it didn't look good for a very long time but the uh the uh founding fathers were you know quite interested in the Scottish history and Scottish Enlightenment. Sure. Uh, a lot of leading thinkers from the uh, the Age of Enlightenment actually came from Scotland. Was John Locke Scottish? John Locke was English, but John Smith was Scottish, the founder okay. of uh, of Market Economics. And, lot- and uh, Hobbes, uh, no, sorry, not Hobbes, but one of uh, Locke's philosophical contemporaries was from Scotland. This game plan, they I'm kind of joking about, it usually involves getting France involved. Not because, I'm not sure you pointed this out yet, France and England kind of hate each other <laughs> up until 1914 with the First World War. Yeah, about then. And, and even after that, they had some, uh, some gripes. It never came to blows after that. But they're uh, just historical enemies. One of the greatest rivalries of all time. It goes, France and England... And then probably Yankees, Red Sox. There you go. Now, let's go back 600 years to 1300-ish. Just before 1300. Just talking. before 1300. And the bully is picking on the nerdy kid, the wimpy kid. And the wimpy kid basically does not refuses to give him his lunch money. And there's going to be a fight. Is that basically where we're headed? That's exactly right. Um. And this is around the time Edward would refer to to John Balliol as the former king of Scotland. Uh, Scotland, England, uh, the English army uh, raids and essentially massacres the population of the city of Berwick. Berwick today is in England, but it had been one of the most hotly contested cities uh, in Britain for a very long time. And... Now, about half the population of uh, Berwick is massacred by the English. And uh, it, it, not a lot of people outside of the UK probably know Berwick that well, but at the time it was the wealthiest trade port in Scotland. It was just an economically devastating move. And it doesn't go unanswered. The Scots jump down to Hexham in England and essentially do the same thing. They destroy the city. Um, it's The English were pretty bad at, at at taking an l and they kind of refer to it as you know huge sacrilege they point out any you know action against the church and, you know call it you know evil and against god um and you you can find a lot of the uh, the the english sources of uh, their contempt uh, towards scotland in this time in that raid uh it was a tit for tat that left both noses pretty bloody. Sure. Sounds like Patriots fans. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that is, uh, that is, that's pretty accurate. Um, so at this time, uh, Scotland and England are officially at war. Uh, and they clash for the first time in a, in a pitched battle at Dunbar, which is in Southern Scotland. Uh, you know, right on the english border and john Balliol leads the army of scotland and uh jean de warren uh, a famous uh, norman knight at the time or norman english uh it's pretty safe to call them english at this point but you'll occasionally hear the uh, the english uh at this time being referred to as norman english uh this was still only a couple of centuries after the norman conquest and you know, the English courts still spoke French, as did the Scottish. But I digress. Sure, that's another Just, podcast. That's for another podcast. That's for William the Conqueror. Uh, in a nutshell, John Bailey gets his his behind added to him. Are you? Uh, how clean is this podcast, Tom? Do I have to censor myself? Um, yeah, I think for for now. Um I mean, if, if you say a bad word by accident, I can edit it out, but. Um, yeah, let's, let's keep it, it kitty friendly So, Balliol gets his butt handed to him at Dunbar. Uh, it's, well, it's a big humiliating defeat, one of the most humiliating in, in Scottish history. It's kind of the one battle that he gets to fight in, and the war's over, you know, for now. Uh, he's, on the 2nd of July, 1296, John Balliol surrenders the land and people of Scotland to Edward. And this is where you can kind of start drawing the the similarity of being conquered, uh, and it, it, in a nutshell, he he does surrender the whole kingdom over to Edward. Uh, on the eighth of July, he formally resigns his kingdom, uh, and he gets the nickname Tomb Tabard, which means empty tabard or or, or empty coat, um, because the uh, the royal sigil or the, the royal symbol of Scotland is, is ripped from him uh physically uh and you know kind of metaphorically i was gonna say what ha- was he beheaded as a traitor by the english or what what happened to him next no he was still a king and we're you know this is still you know feudalism uh they edward and john at one point held the same rank uh even though edward ruled you know, mighty england and john ruled you know, a very much struggling Scotland. Uh, but Balliol, uh, he was not executed. He was he was humiliated publicly, uh, and he was sent to prison first in uh, at the Tower of London. But he didn't stay there long. You know, Tower of London is not doesn't get a good reputation as a as a nice prison all the time, or particularly safe. But he uh, he eventually gets put under house arrest. Sure, he, he, he he's treated well. So it sounds like England's conquered Scotland. I. Knowing the Scottish people, as I do, and I don't know them very well, but I take it they don't just kind of kneel down and say we're, we're yours, do they? They do not, uh, but they were certainly told to. There is um, yeah, it's called the Ragman Roll. It's a document uh, listing about 1,500 Scottish nobles uh, who were f- required to swear fealty to Edward. It was essentially the entire... Uh, nobility and gentry, uh, everybody of of significant land ownership uh, in Scotland was on this role. However, there is a notable name missing from that list, and it's and not Robert guess. Bruce. Oh, never mind. Never no, mind. no, Robert, uh, Robert the Bruce, and all of his, all the the other Robert the Bruces. Uh, uh, there are three at this point: Grandpa, Dad, and and future future hero, Robert Bruce. No, this is a a fairly noble and somewhat, uh, sorry, a fairly obscure uh, minor noble uh, by the name of William Wallace. Watching Braveheart, I thought William Wallace was some kind of common peasant who magically led a revolt because the English killed his wife. And you know, Mel Gibson looks great with long hair and a kilt. It, it, it is a great movie you know everybody likes braveheart it's uh it is a great movie and when you look back at the the source of uh of much of william wallace's uh kind of guest history because there is very little known about he, he was not a he wasn't a peasant but he, he wasn't a major landowner either um you know, a lot of what we have on william wallace and, and his life uh is based on folk tales uh, he was not famous before the Rebellion. You know, we'll get to the Rebellion. Uh, there's a lot of myth about him being seven feet tall based on how big his sword was. Uh, though it should be said that a sword that big, it's, a, it's about five and a half feet long. It's a massive weapon. It's still on display at this day. It's Huge. Uh, but you don't actually have to be that tall to wield it. You just have to be very strong. Uh, it's a kind of weapon that you would kind of, you know, move around like you've got a hula hoop on you. You'd just be kind of dancing, swinging this weapon back and forth with the strength of your your lower body, uh, mercilessly cutting down your enemies. You wouldn't want to be anywhere near William Wallace on the battlefield, but he might not necessarily have been that tall. You know, seven feet tall is a is a tall guy for sure. Uh, and then besides the folktales you know, we've got one other source of uh of knowledge on uh of, of William Wallace and it's english government records from the time and as you can imagine they don't paint him in a very nice way i imagine <laughs> not <laughs> and then there are the scottish sources which paint him as as kind of a mythical character probably a little over exaggerated so you get you know the the scots who adored him and to this day know idolize him and then the English at the time would do anything to make him look terrible and that's the problem with with history it's like especially like I'm seeing the 1700s like George Washington for example must much of what we know about him is basically early 1800s fabricated this guy's great cherry tree never told a lie he was through a rock over the Potomac River but I think in 1700s, you get enough primary sources where you can say, "Ah, uh, he was also a slave owner. He did a couple of things here. Maybe he might have had a girlfriend when he was married to Martha." But I guess William Wallace, you don't have that luxury. No, there, there, there isn't. An, you know, there are certainly tales you know to back up his uh, you know kind of infallibility, um, and. Uh, A big source of confusion and and kind of the missing piece of of, uh, the Scottish nobility and what was going on in Scotland at the time, uh, which may have had some more information on Wallace, uh, was lost after uh, Edward sealed the deal and and essentially made himself owner of Scotland. He had all of the uh, the lists and texts and uh, and documents in, in Scotland uh, sent to England. He wasn't trying to most likely was not trying to erase the, you know, the history of Scotland, but he, as a, a king would, he'd want to, you know, chronicle, um, or record everything, uh, in the country to get an idea of what he was owed and, and what he had at his disposal. But the ship that was carrying all of this information sank. So there's, ve- there's very little information on, you know, on medieval Scotland, you know, and, and its people and its important characters. Uh, you know before the 1300s because a lot of the the knights or the uh, the chroniclers of scotland had to start from scratch uh after this uh this huge loss of information it's it's pretty devastating if you like me and you you try to look up you know pieces of scottish history and and noble families and there's just nothing sure well it gives mel gibson a nice broad canvas to work with that's true uh mel gibson had uh, uh the most famous source of information uh, at, on William Wallace at his disposal, although it is, you know, very exaggerated and, and ridiculously Anglophobic, uh, it's Blind Harry's "The Acts and Deeds of Sir William Wallace." Uh, it's often shortened to "The Wallace," um, and that's what inspired Braveheart. It was. Uh, it's supposedly based on a, a, a Latin book that was intended to be presented to the Pope to make you know, convince him to make Wallace uh, you know, a, an official martyr of the church. Uh, but that's a myth as well. You know, it, it, but whatever it is, it it certainly blows up what an awesome guy William Wallace was. Sure. Well, speaking of what an awesome guy William Wallace was. So well, why don't we talk about what, what prompted William Wallace to lead this rebellion? I mean, like, was he like me bored one day and decide to lead a rebellion or he was, was certainly not bored um, he uh, the, the legend goes and there's uh there's evidence to back this up that uh wallace had you know a long history of violent brawling with the uh, the english uh he supposedly you know killed a couple of english soldiers who were trying to steal uh his catch of the day uh he beat the the living crap out of uh, a, a a minor uh, official, uh, uh, on the street, you know, an English official. Uh, but the, the big kicker was the, um, uh, the, the execution of his wife. Uh, she's called Marion Braidfoot. Uh, but that is, I believe she her, her name was added, uh, to his legend, uh, kind of long after we kind of had an idea of, of what her name could have been. Uh, it doesn't. I don't think it pops up in any sources at the time. It, it might have been uh, a fictional name, but his wife was captured by the the sheriff of Lanark, an Englishman by the name of William Hesselrig. Uh, he executed uh, Wallace's wife as as kind of a a, a punishment for you know, Wallace's constant attacks on the English. You know, he was indeed a guerrilla fighter at this point. Um, and so, in response, uh, Wallace, with a, a band of, of loyal supporters, break into the the sheriff's compound uh, under you know under disguise and kill him in his sleep, kill his son, and all of his soldiers uh, in retribution for for his wife's death. So that that part of the movie was correct. It was uh it was certainly dramatized, but that is that is what we uh that is what we know about the the beginning of Wallace. we can assume that uh that that is what happened to him. So William Wallace kills the sheriff in his garrison. The die has been cast, if you will. Mm-hmm. So is Wallace basically the only Scottish figure that's leading the rebellion, or is there anybody else? He is leading probably the smaller of two uh uprisings in scotland at the time uh the bigger and uh probably more most successful uh at this point was led by a, a scottish knight uh is andrew de moray uh he's sometimes called andrew murray uh the the surname murray comes from de moray which is uh a, a region in, in the highlands of scotland um and andrew de moray was a um he was a, a real military guy. You know, Wallace at this time, he's in his mid-20s. Uh, he's kind of a young upstart with a, a, you know, a lot of charisma and a violent streak about him. Andrew DeMore is a, is a seasoned soldier. He fought at the Battle of Dunbar with um, John Balliol's army. Uh, he and his father were, were captured, but he managed to escape. Uh, and he raised the rebellion with the support of uh, the, the Coleman family, which was... The biggest supporter of uh, of John Balliol at the time, and they're probably the most powerful family in Scotland. Uh, and they had a rebellion in Moray and Aberdeenshire uh, up in twelve ninety seven. So yeah, so there's a two two prong rebellion. So you got yeah. Alec, Andrew Moray and William Wallace. Was Moray in Braveheart at all? He's a, for some reason left out of Braveheart. <laughs> They had a lot of characters that they they fabricated uh, or completely left out of Braveheart. Probably the closest character you could get in Braveheart to Andrew Moray is Stephen the Irishman. Is Andrew de Moray? You know, Moray is part of the the Highlands of Scotland, which were significantly you know more Gaelic than the uh, the, the the Lowlands. In fact, William Wallace was you know his family was probably you know invited to Scotland during the uh, the reign of David the first who you know was a lover of the Norman French culture aka English uh, but at the time was was Norman and Wallace's last name you know could have been you know originally de Wall or Wallies or de Wallace uh, the point being de something being French mm-hmm. uh, but uh, and Andrew de morey also, being Damore probably had some ties to the Normans as well. Uh, but these were the the, the the Gallic Highlanders with their big swords, and they, they didn't have kilts, but they, they wouldn't have been, you know, armed and ar- armored the same way that their neighbors to the south would have been. These were vicious, hard fighting men. Scottish people wear kilts back then, or is that in the future? No, they did not wear kilts. It's a, a sad reality that kilts were not yet invented. Uh, they would have been wearing uh, on the battlefield something very similar, but, but that we have sources that of much lower quality uh, to the English. Uh, but they would have been dressed in mail and leather armor and skull caps. If you've ever seen uh, Outlaw King, it's a much more historically accurate uh, portrayal of, uh, of English and Scottish soldiers at the time. Gisemel Gibson's not a historian. He's not, and neither is Randall Wallace, uh, who I think was the, the creator or the writer. We don't, we, don't, we don't want to pick on Braveheart too much. It is a great movie, sure. uh, but it is uh, vilified by historians. William Wallace kills a sheriff, and what's his next move from there? So he unites his small force with uh, Andrew de More's force in Perth, uh, towards the, the, the second half of the year in 12, uh, 1297. Um, and they are under the impression and they've received, uh, word that the English are coming to, to put down this little rebellion. The English, uh, King Edward the as we've been talking about him, uh, sends a, a, a sizable army. It's not the, the might of England by any means. Uh, but it's a good you know, 10,000 men, uh, mostly foot soldiers, but it includes 200 uh, knights and men at arms, the, the real professionals. Um, and by contrast, Wallace and uh, Demore have about 8,000, uh, but notably almost all infantry, and about 36 uh, professional cavalry soldiers uh, at the battlefield or, or in their army. And so they unite at Perth, and move south to Stirling, which is the gateway to the highlands uh, of Scotland. If you look at a map of Scotland, there's a, a, a large, you know, bigger than a river. It's called the, For- the Firth of Forth. And it cuts right through uh, Scotland. There's even a canal connecting it to uh, the Firth of Clyde. But that wasn't built until way later. But essentially, Stirling is the gateway to most of Scotland. I was going to say, listeners, if you're out there if you're not driving or not busy, Google a map of Scotland. Oh, I agree. Uh, you'll recognize, you know, a lot of the places that have been mentioned Berwick will certainly be on the map, though. It'll be in England. in, in this, if you're looking at a modern map, Moray, I believe is still the official name of, uh, that kind of, I don't want to, I don't want to call it a state, but the, 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 the local region of Scotland, uh, you know, up in the north, is, I believe it's still called Moray, Moray Shirt. Sure. Uh, and Sterling will certainly be on there. You know, right, kind of right smack in the, the middle of, of the, uh, the Firth of 4th and the Firth of Clyde. It's, uh, it's a, a very strategic location in Scotland. Yeah, I, I think for now, Wiley, before I start my podcast, I'm going to say, all right, listeners, Google a map of this or that. As long as you're not driving. If you're driving, just you got to follow along and do the best you can <laughs> Multitasking. No, don't do it. Don't, don't do that. <laughs> we're not we're not gonna condone that on the podcast. Yeah, please don't. We're not if we don't allow swearing, we don't we don't we're not gonna do that. <laughs> so Moray and Wallace unite and they have eight thousand against ten thousand. And one thing inside it cuts you off again. Back then those are pretty big armies, right? Oh yeah um you know like i said it wasn't all of england but it was a, a sizable chunk of scotland and scotland is, does not have a huge population never did and at this time 8000 is a, a sizable chunk of men the these 100,000 men armies we don't see them in europe until the napoleonic wars probably a, a, yeah napoleonic wars are probably the the, the height of, of you know the, the beginning of the first uh Grand armies in Europe. There were probably some big battles fought in the Seven Years' War and Spanish succession and that time period. But, you know, 18th century, 19th century was where you see the big armies. Sure. I know in the Civil War, the Battle of Bull Run, both sides had like 35,000 men. At the time, that was absurdly huge. And the Revolutionary War, again, 10 and 8,000 were big armies. So even in like early 1800s, that's Still pretty big, I know. By by the Civil War, the first war in America, you see these huge armies. Revolutionary War, War of eighteen twelve, both sides of a few thousand men. Oh yeah. So, sorry, I, I kind of digressed There, you can continue. I can, I can tell what your passion is. <laughs> exactly, I'm, I'm I'm more of American military history. You're more British European history. So it's September eleventh. Uh, it's. Not a great day to be English uh, at Stirling. Um, September 11th is uh, the day that the English army arrives at Stirling Bridge. And Their c- commander, as we've mentioned him already, is John de Warren, but he, he's an old fella. And he's assisted by the uh, appointed treasurer of Scotland, Hugh de Cressingham. Uh, he's this famously fat and and. and at this point, he's pretty w- widely hated in Scotland. Uh, he's just this uh, awful guy, um, and uh, decressing him, uh, the treasurer, who, the fat treasurer, uh, convinces John de Warren to, you know, lead his army, you know, over the bridge and attack the the Scottish army, which they uh, they had just sighted, kind of watching them from the uh, the other side. And so one thing you should know about Stirling Bridge, the, the original Stirling Bridge, it's very long and it's very thin. Uh, and so most of the English army has to cross. You know, I think it's, you know, they can only fit maybe two horses abreast at a time. So it's a long column going across the bridge. And Moray and Wallace can't believe their luck. They, they're just looking at, you know, the English just Walking right into a trap, and the English must have at least had some idea that they were doing this, but you know, orders are orders. And so, about half the English army, you know, we've called five thousand men, I believe, all of the knights, you know, are over. Uh, the, they make it over to the bridge, and this is when Wallace and Moray just sound a general charge. It's it's a field day. They come running down the hills with, with uh, mostly armed with spears. And they—it's just a slaughter. They have a, a a field day massacring the the English army, uh, and it's a good army. That's a, a well-seasoned army. Um, the uh, Cressingham, the, the treasurer, uh, kind of realizes that you know he's he's gonna die. Uh, so he famously you know rides into the you know headfirst into the Scottish, who you know legend goes tore him literally to shreds and used his, he gave him a, a piece of his skin to William Wallace to decorate his sword. But that's kind of a morbid, uh, a morbid legend. I don't, we don't know if it's true. Um, I hope not. It's, it's pretty nasty. About 5,000, the casualties are estimated to be about 5,000 English soldiers uh, are killed in this battle. And, uh, very few can make it over the back over the bridge because it's just a widespread widespread panic. Uh, guys are fallen in the river. Uh, some legends say the bridge collapsed you know, with much of the English army on it. And you know, if you're wearing a suit of armor, uh, it doesn't help you swimming at all. But uh, that's also a legend. It it probably did not collapse. Uh, but it's uh, you know it, it didn't need to. Uh, Only, only one English knight wrote. He was actually Welsh. Uh, He had a fun name like Marmaduke. Uh, He rides back and and tells Hugh de Cressingham, you know, this is we we can't we can't stop this. We got to go home. Uh, And so the the English retreat with what forces they have left and leave uh, the Wallace and Moray with the most stunning victory they could have ever hoped for. Uh, it, It was. A, a, a huge bloody nose to England and a, a huge battle cry or a rallying cry for the Scottish who have kind of been you know, being humiliated by Edward and the English for, for a while now. Sure. Let me recap this and get i so make sure I got it straight and all my listeners got it straight. Cause you, you, you said it, you did a great job with that. Well, thank you. It sounds so the English guy, the fat treasurer guy sends half his army over the bridge very thin bridge. He only sent a few guys over at a time. The Scottish, under Wallace and de Morey attacked half the English army, basically wipe it out, kill the fat dude, um, and the other half that were on the other side of the bridge retreated. Essentially, did they? Take- the the um, the uh, Scots actually started crossing the bridge, uh, and I be- there, there was um, there's some. Story saying that the, uh, the English tried to burn down the bridge uh, to prevent them from counterattacking. But uh, it wasn't a, a huge counter move that would have, you know, they wouldn't have slaughtered the entire English army. They wouldn't have the opportunity to cross the bridge and put themselves in the same position the English did. But, but you're right. The, uh, you know, half the English make it to the other side of the bridge and don't make it to, don't make it home. Did, was there such thing as like taking prisoners of war back then? It was not common for, to take a uh, uh, a foot soldier prisoner in the heat of battle. Uh, a and, and nobleman definitely would have been captured. Uh, Hugh de Cressingham didn't have that luxury uh, when he was uh, when he was on the battlefield. Uh, but uh, prisoners were. You know, this was a, a very different time in warfare. Uh, prisoners probably would have been taken. Um, and I'm sure at least a couple were taken at Sterling Bridge, but it, it was a brutal hand to hand fight. And it, 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 was, uh, it was a massacre. Ouch. It sounds like it. Yeah, medieval bad. combat was not pretty. But um, one thing that needs to be kind of pointed out is you'll see the. We're going to go back to Brayheart. Sure, but I was, I was meant to point that out. Go ahead. You, you'll probably notice that there was no bridge at the battle of Sterling bridge, uh, in Braveheart in reality, they probably just didn't have a, the budget for the bridge, but William uh, Wallace and, really made that sweet speech, right? Word for he word. did he did have a, uh, 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 it wasn't a big speech, but we do have a, uh, you know, a, uh, some stories that, uh, the, uh, the English did try to, you know, convince him to go away. Um, and he refused, and so they sent some of their Scottish supporters, this was, you know, as much a civil war as it was a war for independence, uh, to convince Wallace to um, to go away, and he still refused. And uh, he did, um, you know, his response was, um, we come here with no peaceful intent, but uh, ready for battle, determined to avenge our wrongs and set our country free. Uh, Let them come on, and we shall prove this to their very beards. Uh, So he did have a cool line. Uh, There's no record of him making a a huge rallying speech to his own men, uh, probably because he didn't have to. Uh, As soon as the English started crossing the bridge, uh, the battle was won. (laughs) There was no chance the the Scottish were going to lose that fight. There you go. So William Wallace wins his big victory. How is Andrew Moray there? He is there, unfortunately. Uh, well, fortunately and unfortunately. Uh, he was the, the, the military brains of the, of the pair. But he is badly wounded in the fighting. And does he recover from those wounds? He will, a couple of months later, die of his wounds. So he's out of the picture. That's why he doesn't get the PR that William Wallace does. He's not quite out of the picture yet. He, after Sterling Bridge, uh, Wallace and uh, De More uh, basically contact all of Scotland's old friends in France and um, the Hanseatic League, which is the big, uh, the big trade league in the uh, in the Baltic and around Germany. Uh, you know, we think of merchant republics being in like Venice and Genoa and, and Ragusa, but this, uh, these were the the German, the Northern European equivalents. And it's, they essentially uh, invite the Hanseatic League to uh, resume trade with an independent Scotland. It was the legitimizing move that they needed uh, to invite foreign powers to to trade and deal with Scotland again. And there, you know, uh, what letters, we, we still have letters uh, from um, Andreas de Moravia and uh, Wilhelmus de Valles You know, Andrew de Morey and William Wallace, you know, writing to these German lords and and asking them for their business again. Do they get it? I actually don't know how successful it was. It certainly wasn't uh, long lived, but um, shortly afterwards, uh, Andrew de Morey does die and it leaves William Wallace the, uh, the sole guardian of Scotland. So just going back to the movie he was I don't know the movie he was knighted and then invades England. was that true? It is true uh, he is uh, he and Demorey are made guardians of Scotland, which are the de facto rulers of Scotland, but they're they're certainly not you know crowned king. Uh, in fact the, everything Wallace and Demorey did uh, was was proudly in the name of of the aforementioned John Balliol uh, he's still considered by many, uh, to be the, uh, the rightful king of Scotland and all of these freedom fighters, uh, that we know them today are, are fighting for him. Uh, they're, they're fighting to reinstall John Balliol back on the throne. So after the battle of Stirling, what happens next? Obviously like, the momentum's definitely going on the Scottish side. It is. And the, uh, the Scots, uh, under Wallace, uh, now that there's no more, uh, De more um, invade England they make it deep into Northumbria and Cumbria which if you google a map of the of the UK uh it's kind of you know the north country of uh, of England um Cumbria is uh is kind of the region of England just south of the Scottish border and uh, Northumbria is uh, a little bit uh east of that I think uh but they they, they stay there until Christmas they're uh, they're there for you know from September till December, uh, just destroying the English countryside. It was uh, you know, widely re- described as a, a as a a big damaging raid. The uh, the English don't forgive Wallace for that. Just because they they, they already weren't on good terms to begin with, obviously. Yeah, they didn't like him already. This did not help uh, Wallace's reputation in England. How did um. How far did the Wallace's army get into England? They didn't make it to York. Uh, they did not make it that far south. Uh, but they made it pretty deep into northern England. So what what made him go back to Scotland? Was he just homesick or did the English all of a sudden launch a counterattack? Uh, it was just the weather. Uh, most uh, armies at this time did not operate in winter. It was, it was a nightmare to, um, to basically acquire enough food for your army in the, in the winter. Uh, nothing's growing. You can't really forage. Uh, and so when the, uh, Northern England had been sufficiently pillaged, uh, they went back to Scotland to, to plan the next move. So how is Edward Longshanks reacting? Is he, I'm sure he's probably not happy. He's not happy. Uh, he politely extricates himself from his war with France. Uh, and he returns to England uh, forms an army of about uh, 12,000 infantry and 1,500 of those famous heavy cavalry, the knights and men-at-arms. Um, it includes uh, a contingent uh, of the, uh, the, of longbowmen. Uh, anybody who's ever set their hands on a game of Age of Empires too knows all about longbowmen. Uh, English and Welsh uh, archers, Equipped with what was probably the most, the deadliest, one of the most accurate weapons of the time. Uh, in fact, the only reason that the English stopped using them is because it took so long to train uh, somebody to load and fire a longbow. Uh, effectively, it took a lot of strength to operate one of these weapons um, compared to loading and shooting a, a primitive firearm that it they could just mass up armies of, of gunners. This is centuries after the wars of Scottish independence. So I am digressing, but this is just to paint a picture of, of how deadly this weapon was uh in, in Edward's army. And yeah. So they uh they they go north from England into Scotland, uh and progress was pretty slow. He had a huge army, uh and the Scots did employ uh scorched earth policy. Uh, they famously, you know, the English army, as soon as they got into um, Lothian, all they could find was one skinny cow. And it was not enough to, to feed the English army. Uh, they had a, a long and terrible trip. I'm going back to the Revolutionary War real quick. And some of, that's the same problem that the British had against the Americans. Again, same playbook. Uh, it just living off the land and the scorched earth policy. This is before trucks and trains and supply depots it's really not it's like the civil war where i get where like basically the railroad makes this logistics so much easier yeah yeah thanks for putting that into perspective the the, the best thing you had was a a, a cart <laughs> exactly you couldn't just call no amazon prime back then <laughs> nope because i i think it's important because i think like when most people think of war, we think Saving Private Ryan, World War II or Gettysburg in the Civil War. Where they, they, those armies didn't really, I'm, they had their own problems with that, with supplies and logistics. But it was definitely much easier to supply a large army. Oh yeah, sure. So you, that's you, one, sorry, one you... of the reason why uh, we're going back to um, why these armies were so small. Mm-hmm. Huge armies were painfully expensive. Uh, to maintain and the logistics where well, they were just a logistical nightmare to, to to operate in a large campaign. And Edward was probably the, one of the few guys in the time period up to the task himself being a great military commander. Uh, that was why he was able to muster 12,000 well, footmen and 1500 knights uh, in, a, in a year and then march to Scotland uh, in six months. So Edward's army, they arrive, thanks to him being the logistic master, they arrive in England with 12,000 troops. Does William Wallace just kind of give up and go home? No, he does not. He actually, uh, he's in a good mood. Like I said, Back to what we were talking about with logistics, uh, the English supply ships, uh, were, for some reason, uh, carrying wine and no food. And so Edward's army is hungry, tired, cold, and drunk. Other and than that, it, it gets worse when the English and the Welsh you know, soldiers in, in this one army get into a number of altercations and they, they actually start killing each other, not on a great scale, uh, but they're, this is not a functioning army edward is not a happy camper he's even considering retreating uh to not back to england but to edinburgh um, like you know edinburgh being the, the today's capital of scotland uh and the occupation is still ongoing uh so he he can go to edinburgh he's not trying to to take a a, a fortress as you as you might have thought by him going to the capital of Scotland. He, he basically owns it. And so he wants to retreat. Uh, and Wallace knows this. You know, he's been, he, being the great guerrilla leader he is, he's been watching the uh, the English and he, he's heard the rumors that his army, that, the, that Edward's army is tired and demoralized. Uh, and so he uh, essentially moves to meet him uh, to intercept his uh, retreat back to Edinburgh. So he wants to do battle. Uh, it's, uh, and we, there's no definitive location uh, where we know the battle took place, but we know it was around Falkirk. Falkirk. Uh, and if, remember, if you watch the movie Braveheart, you probably know the battle of Falkirk. You, you, if you've seen Braveheart, you've seen Falkirk. And it's not a terrible, we'll give Braveheart some credit, it's not, it's not all wrong. You know, they got some of it right and some big pieces of it right. So battle time. What happens to the Battle of Falkirk? So it's the 22nd of July, 1298. Uh, the Scots have an army uh, mostly of pikemen uh, or spearmen uh, with some archers and uh, some light cavalry. But it's another one of those you know, lightly armored, poorly equipped Scottish armies that if you put them you know in a, in a pitched battle against Edward's army you'd you'd expect them to get absolutely squashed you know, it's it's not you know it, it, it's a lot of conscripts a lot of levies uh mostly peasants uh, hardly any knights probably Wallace was the only one uh compared to the 1500 with the Engl- uh, on the English side the uh the Scots do have an advantage in that they have, um, uh, they form these kind of large hedgehog-like formations of of their spearmen. Uh, each of these uh, would have been called a shiltron. Uh, and it, they're just absolutely horrifying to behold. There's just it's 1, 000, about 1,500 men per shiltron, all armed with a, a huge long spear or pike about twice the height of a man. You, know, you, you can't penetrate this thing uh, very easily. Uh, the uh, early stages of the battle actually bode well for the Scottish. Uh, the English knights try their luck to run down these uh, but the ground is boggy and wet, as you'd expect in Scotland, and the horses don't like it. Uh, and so they kind of embarrassingly ride up, get stuck in the mud and re- turn back. Uh, next they try to they have a little solid ground, but you know the horses and men do kind of impale themselves on the the, the spears of these these uh, Scottish Chiltrons uh, and it just looks awful and Edward's already in a bad mood and it it just doesn't look like an, like a big crushing victory for England um, but, And we don't know why, um, the Scottish cavalry abandons the field and we've been kind of downplaying the Scottish cavalry, uh, for, you know, this battle, you know, the light cavalry, mostly skirmishers, but they're the only counter the Scottish have to the longbowmen, uh, the, the Welsh and English archers, you know, they... The the light cavalry was the uh, would be able to disrupt these archers and, and run them down and then retreat before the English infantry or, or heavy cavalry could catch up to them. Uh, it was the kind of their saving grace for the battle, and they they bounce they, they, they leave the field. Nobody knows why. Uh, you see it in Braveheart. They just kind of they don't try to explain it. They they just kind of turn around and go away. Um, the, the the leading Theory is that they were bribed by the English. Um, but the, uh, or they just had no hope of winning. Uh, I have seen some, uh, accounts where they were actually, you know, they were caught by English cavalry and were forced to retreat, uh, or they were caught out of position, but regardless, they're gone. Uh, the, the Scottish Sheltrons are now completely vulnerable to, uh, the English and Welsh archers. Um, and these, uh, they, they, just like at, at Sterling, it's time for the English to have just a field day. Uh, they launched volley after volley of, uh, of longbow, uh, vo- arrow fire, uh, at these Shiltrons, completely thinning their ranks. These a tightly packed formations of men. Um, and they, they, they can, they don't have to aim. They can just, you know, point their bows in the general direction of the of these packed masses of men in loose and arrow, fitting um, these ranks considerably enough for the English cavalry to just steamroll them. They, they pound right through the lines, they catch up to the the small contingent of, of Scottish archers and just massacre them to a man. Uh, it's it, it's a disaster. Uh, Wallace is able to escape with, with some of his men, but uh, it, it was, it was not a pretty day. Uh, Gonna call out Braveheart one more time. There's, there's no, um, there's no record of Robert the Bruce being there. Uh, He was not behind the, uh, uh, the, he was not behind the, uh, the treachery in in the battle. Uh, If there was any of the the Scottish cavalry retreating, he he was not there. Uh, But uh, that doesn't save, uh, that doesn't save anybody on the Scottish side. It's, it's a disaster. And in their defense, uh, like I said, uh, Braveheart is based off of blind Harry's uh, the Wallace. Uh, And that does point to, um, you know, a lot of the the, the historical fallacies. And I believe it does even say that uh, that Bruce and, and Wallace had an altercation and that, that, that inspires Bruce to, to switch sides towards the Scottish, uh, but that's that, that's as all as far as we know is, is a fabrication. So Wallace loses the battle of Falkirk. Is that the end of Wallace? Is that basically his story's over? It's the end of his military career, as we know it. Um, you know, he is uh, he doesn't uh, get erased from history. He's not. You know, he doesn't quit. Uh, he basically becomes the ambassador for Scotland. You know, he he. Does resign his post as guardian. He becomes more of it. Uh, he, he takes a different approach to, to Scottish independence. Um, he writes to, uh, to France, actually, I believe, he actually goes to France uh, to uh, argue on behalf of Scotland to Philippe. Uh, and Philippe does uh, introduce Wallace via letter to the Pope, uh, and they make plans to, uh, to kind of talk the, uh, the English out of the war. I uh, have a diplomatic solution. Uh, that was Pope Boniface the, the something. Uh, my Latin's not very good, so I'm going to call him Boniface, uh, Boniface the Seventh, uh, to intervene on behalf of King John Balliol. We'll keep using his name. It's, they're not trying to install William Wallace on the throne. Uh, they're not trying to put anybody new on the throne. They want to put bring back John Balliol. Uh and this is around uh, the time that Robert the Bruce does. Uh young Robert Bruce uh, defects to the English. Uh his grandpa dies. Uh his I think his father dies around this time. Uh and his only hope of uh of having any you know power in Scotland is with the English. Gotcha. Power power always wins. Power always wins. And uh I, I probably should have uh, included you know, this earlier in the podcast. Um, the reason you know, Bruce is kind of um, flipping back and forth between Scotland and England, and he's, he's kind of Braveheart kind of gave him that, that legacy is that John Balliol absolutely hated him and his whole family and the power behind the Balliols, the Coleman family uh, who were, with um, Andrew Moray uh, also hated him and his family. They were the big were Hatfields and McCoys of the time were the Bruce's and the Coleman's and the Bruce's and the Balliol's. So Bruce is not, you know, any success for Wallace uh, at this time is not looking good for Bruce. Sure. And he, uh, is is that square. he doesn't like the English. He just wants, he just thinks he, they'll prove his chances of getting the throne. It. it he does not want to submit to England, uh, as far as we know. But he his only, you know, options for getting his claim or even keeping his lands alive with siding with, with Edward. And Edward uh, was, you know, was a friend of his family. You know, these you know, families in England and Scotland were closely tied, uh, you know, up and down the, the power the the power hierarchy. Pardon me, power hierarchy. Now, like I said, you know, and, you know, Alexander III was married to uh, a relative of, of Edward Longshanks and you know, everybody was cousins. Sure. Just like Game of Thrones. Just like Game of Thrones. All of these, these noble families have close ties on both sides of the border. So it sounds like Robert the Bruce is sucking up to Edward Longshanks mm-hmm. and William Wallace is rubbing elbows with the Pope. Mm-hmm. So does the Pope get involved? Does the King of France get involved? They start. They be they, they uh, the, the first now that letter was the first step in um, in foreign intervention on, on behalf of Scotland. There's a problem though. What's the problem? The French army is destroyed by the Flemish in a pitched battle, where the Flemish deployed schiltrons of spearmen. Uh, and utterly destroyed the uh, the French heavy cavalry when they charged them. So the French army's gone. The Pope and the King of France also start bickering, uh, and the Pope is trying to warm up to England uh, and Edward, and he goes as far as to command Scottish bishops to make peace with the English. So it, it not only does this forward intervention not materialized it backfires. You know, the, the Pope is suddenly, you know, pro Edward. You know, and then France is completely hindered militarily. But yeah, you know, France, uh, France can't help uh Scotland. The Pope won't help Scotland. So they're they're on their own. And it gets even worse. Uh Edward sticks around in Scotland. He doesn't, after the battle of Falkirk, he does he doesn't go back. He he comes to finish uh, what he started, and it escalates uh, and culminates to the siege of Stirling Castle, which at this point uh, has, uh, has not fallen to any invader. It has been bypassed by the English. Uh, they want to end their war by taking Stirling Castle, so they actually take uh, some pontoon bridges and, and cross the, the, the Firth of Forth uh, to bypass Stirling Castle. And they siege it for days. Uh, they, you know, if, if you've seen Outlaw King, you've you heard of the war wolf. Uh, it was, they did not bring down uh, Sterling Castle with with one shot, uh, as in the movie. But the uh, it's actually a long siege. They do use the war wolf, which is this massive trebuchet. Uh, or for those of you who don't know what a trebuchet is, it's kind of like a, a, a very advanced catapult. Uh, and they f- throw the medieval equivalent of napalm at the castle the greek fire uh and they seized for for days and the castle only surrenders when they run out of food um and uh it's at that point where the war is over uh england wins scotland surrenders a second time uh and edward begins uh the legal procedures of making scotland a, an english province now, before we wrap up, what happens to William Wallace? William Wallace is a man on the run, uh, with the, the loss of any French support and papal support. He's he's on his own, and he he does participate in some skirmishes and some guerrilla tactics, uh, you know, against the English. But uh, nobody wants to to join with him and, and provide him with a large army at this point. the, the, the the wind is no longer in Scotland's sails. Uh, Wallace is uh, hes a fugitive. Huge pa- uh, bounties were placed on his head. Uh, and uh, he's kind of without allies at this point. Not looking too good. No. Though it is around this time after the surrender of Stirling Castle that Robert Bruce uh, flip-flops again. And he writes a letter to a Scottish, uh, high-ranking Scottish clergyman and, uh, you know, they both agree to mutually assist each other, uh, whatever that may be. Uh, and it, they don't explicitly say, you know, put Robert the Bruce on the throne, but with, uh, Balliol basically done, he's the war, you know, on his behalf is, is over. The Bruce can start taking his own steps and towards uh, his claim. Excellent. So Wallace is on the run. Does he get captured eventually? He does. Uh, Wallace was captured on the third of August, thirteen o five. So this is, uh, you know, a good year after the, the end of the war. He, he's he has been hiding in caves and, and forests, and, and you know, probably picking off English soldiers you know, on roads, like like a, 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 a vigilante, a Robin Hood, I like a Robin Hood type uh, character. He may have been an, uh, a. a an archer the uh, the seal of uh, william wallace is actually a longbow um uh, but uh wallace is captured by uh men acting on behalf of sir john Menteith. uh he is a a famous or I should say infamous traitor to scotland he um he's vilified to this day he um uh, he flip-flopped a couple of times during the course of the of the war with england Uh, He was fighting for Balliol at the Battle of Dunbar uh, and was captured. Uh, He earned his release from prison by fighting for Edward of England uh, against the French. Uh, After uh, returning to Scotland, he does join the Scottish cause again. Uh, And then finally in 1304, after Stirling Falls, he submits to Edward again. Uh, He is awarded the title Sheriff of Dumbarton uh he's essentially an english pet at this point and he pays uh a sizable amount of money to some spies to to capture wallace in glasgow which is the uh, now the biggest city of scotland but uh, if you look at a map it's uh on the western uh, southwest coast of scotland um and uh wallace is uh sent to carlisle in uh in northern england and he is—he's uh, put on a 17-day carriage ride from Carlisle to London, uh, and uh, it's kind of a, a a mean parade. It's a mean-spirited kind of "look, we got him" kind of uh, event. Uh, the uh, Lanercost Chronicle, one of the uh, the big English chronicles uh, of the time, uh, and famously, Anti Wallace. Uh, celebrated uh, the capture of William Wallace. Uh, It reads, Thou pillager of many a sacred shrine, Butcher of thousands, threefold death be thine. So shall the English from from thee gain relief. Scotland be wise and choose a nobler chief. It should be noted that when Wallace invaded England, uh, he sacked uh, their abbey, the Lanercost Abbey, or... Uh, their their church, and so they really didn't like him. And they had a personal grudge against him. But um, that you know, it Wallace was a a, a violent man, a charism- charismatic, and, and if you're Scottish and love Scotland, a great man. But he was uh, he did he did raid their abbey, and he did make them mad. <laughs> so he's brought I am taking he's brought to trial, and I take it he's not going to get away with uh, community service. It's, uh, you're correct. He gets a, a slightly harsher sentence than than uh, community service. Uh, it's the 23rd of August, 1305, um, and Wallace is given a, a trial. And yet, you, you can't see me, but I'm I'm doing air quotes. Um, he, it's not a real trial. He he's basically read his his charges uh, and. Wallace doesn't deny any of them. Yeah. They're robbery arson colluding with the French yeah. and there's, it's public knowledge. Uh, he, he's, but the one thing he does take a gripe with is the, uh, ac- accusation of treason, uh, going back to the, uh, that, that Ragman role, he does not submit to Edward. You know, he does not accept Edward as his King. And so he can't act in treason against him. Uh, you know, he that doesn't matter to the uh, to the English judges, um, and uh, you know they consider it treason nonetheless. And so he's given the the, the execution of uh, a traitor, being uh, hanged, drawn, and quartered. And I guess if you haven't seen Braveheart, hanged, drawn, and quarters means they put your arm basically, they put each of your arms, each of your legs, tie them up, and they get like a horse, to kind of like pull you apart basically right that's the uh the believe it or not that's the pg version of oh, hanging uh, it, it's it was worse so the first day the english stripped him naked and dragged him four miles through the city of london breaks go on if you if you're driving with kids turn this off and listen to it by yourself sorry continue yeah, park the car and stick in your headphones. <laughs> uh, it, this is going to be the, uh, the worst part, the, the most gruesome part of an already gruesome story. Uh, so he's it, drawn through the city, uh, dragged behind two horses uh, before a, a cheering, you know, angry crowd. They hate Wallace. He's, he's, he's a terrorist in their eyes. Uh, it is said that the gallows that they brought him to were unusually tall. Uh, so there is another you know, reference to him being just a big guy. Um, so they had special gallows made for him, and so they uh, hanging, drawing, and quarter. They, they hang him by the neck until he's basically half dead. And he's almost to complete suffocation, uh, but but still alive. Uh, it is, it's I believe the uh, that's the first of the three deaths that the, uh, the Lanarkost Chronicle kind of prescribes for him. Uh, I believe it's the death of a, of a, of a, of a vagabond or a, of a robber. Uh, next, he is Drawn, uh, and that is, uh, this is the worst part. Uh, cover your ears, uh, everybody who's a little sensitive uh, or queasy or, or squeamish. They, they starting at the, uh, at, at the Stones of Scone, uh, his, uh, his genitals, they, they carve him, uh, up. They disembowel him. Uh, they remove his intestines and burn them cere- ceremoniously. Uh, and it's at this point where he is dead. He's not, he, th- this is what kills him. Uh, and that is the second death prescribed to him by the, the, the Lanarkos Chronicle. And finally they chop off his head and his arms, uh, that is the third death, uh, though he is already dead. Uh, and they send his, uh, his quarters, uh, his arms and legs to uh, different sites throughout northern Britain as a, as a warning. Uh, they sent to Perth, Stirling, Berwick, and Newcastle-upon-Tyne. Two of those cities are uh, today in England and the other two are in Scotland. Uh, and his head is placed on a spike on London bridge uh, as a, as a warning to all who would stand against Edward Longshanks. It's not a good way to go. It's not a good way to go, but um, Edward, you know, the reason he chose this, you know, you know the, one of the reasons they chose this horrible, horrible execution method, it was to destroy his body. They didn't want Wallace to be, you know, martyred, uh, <laughs> Uh, hindsight's twenty twenty. Uh, but they did the same thing to Joan of Arc. you know they 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 burned her ashes, her body and they scattered the ashes where nobody could find them. They wanted to destroy uh, Wallace as a as a physical symbol. That backfires horribly. Um, and uh, you know, the war doesn't resume immediately, but um, it, it's uh, it, it it's a nasty move. And the, uh, the people of Scotland don't take it lightly. So probably going to wrap up for tonight. But like you said, this is not the end of the story. This is basically the turning point. So it's going to be a new yeah. a new figure that basically picks up where Wallace left off, correct? That's correct. Uh, we've mentioned him a couple of times. Uh, most of us know him. Uh, he is Robert, Robert Bruce. Robert the Bruce. Robert De Bruce, he's uh, he's the other favorite son of, of Scotland in uh, in this time period, and he is in Braveheart. He is in Braveheart, um, and he's painted kind of as he is in uh, in uh, Blind Harry's uh, the Wallace. He's uh, he is a, historically he is a, a gray character. He does uh, he does collude with the English and he does collude with the Scottish and he's uh he is out for, to be king he he does have a goal uh but he is uh yeah his his turn is next he's a deal maker he's a deal maker there he's a go. good deal maker, um and a uh he's, he gets he's also a, a murderer he gets uh excommunicated he's got a, a a story um but where we leave off with the death of william wallace he's um he's officially one of edward's men but He's uh, he's starting to make his move uh, for his his bid to the for the throne. Well, Bob, thank you for coming on on the show. Uh, this is a great first episode, and I look forward to seeing hearing from you whenever next week or the week after that, and we can pick up the story. I like it. Good stuff, man. Like, oh, I Always love talking about Scotland. I know you do. <laughs> I, I talk about these guys, so it's good. He knows his stuff, and sure enough, it's shooting the ball with. Him. I'm so